They buried me in the water and I came, I knew. Ha <laughs> ha! Now I'm baptized in blue. I'm a fighter. I'm a never quit. I refuse to lose. I got heart and I got gritty. I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue. I'm a warrior. Just been baptized in blue. I'm a fighter. to the Changing the Culture podcast with your host, me, Autumn Clifford. As always, I'm very excited to have you here. If you loved that music, go to the end of the podcast, check out the whole song. I love hip hop. I love first responders. So mixing it together is obviously one of the things that I'm passionate about. I'm really excited to bring you today's show. But before I do, I want to invite you uh, to come and hang out with me in the Culture Shock Challenge. I am Uh, teaching you, I'm leading and guiding you on 14-day challenge on how you can uh, ditch burnout to be the most resilient person that you know, and to honestly really shock our culture, change the culture that we have for first responders. Uh, This is designed specifically for you. It's all, all backed by science. There's a link in the bio. It's free to join. Come and hang out with us. Let's go. You want to feel better? You want to lose some weight? You want to be able to think better? You want to be able to sleep better? This is for you. I made it just for you. All right, fam. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode as much as I enjoyed making it for you. Donna, I'm really excited to have you here with us. Can you please tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. My name is Donna Michaels. I am uh, currently an author. Um, This is my new title. I have written my first book called Courageously Broken under the name of D.A. Michaels. It is about uh, overcoming adversity and conquering the battle scars of life is is what I like to call it. I'm a U.S. Navy veteran, uh, currently disabled. I am also a 20-year law enforcement officer, soon to retire. Super excited. Woohoo! Just got my real estate license, so that's going to be my, uh, hopefully, icing on the cake if, if that does well. And right now, the book is keeping me really busy, so I'm excited about that as well. My goal with the book, I'm very passionate about PTSD among uh, veterans and first responders, and that's more or less the moral of the story with my book is, you know, going through traumatic times, um, not as only a child as a veteran, but also as from witnessing it after 20 years of law enforcement, kind of going into hell and then climbing out of it and coming out stronger on the other side. So I'm, I'm real passionate about uh, erasing the stigma of PTSD so that more heroes will um, understand that they aren't alone and, and they'll get the help that they need. I love that. Um, so can you tell us real quick, can we pick up that book on Amazon? You can. It is uh, available on Amazon and Kindle. It is also available on Nook. And it is available on my website. And if somebody ordered now, obviously I don't do downloads. It's it's only ebook on Nook and uh, Amazon and Kindle. The, uh, Kind Amazon is selling it in paperback. Um, I'm sorry, no, it's available in hardcover now and as well. And but if they order from me off of my website, um, I will personally sign it and ship it. So just kind of depends What's what they website? want. It is courageously brokencom so t- tell me about what's courageously broken mean. Well, you know, I went after all I've been through in my life, I can't even count how many times I've been told, oh my God, your life is crazy. You should write a book. And I would always kind of laugh and go, yeah, right. Who's got time for that? Um, and um, 
people would tell me, oh, you're so strong, you're so resilient, you're so this, you're so that. But inside, I didn't feel that way. I always felt like I belonged on the misfit, you know, misfit toys island. I felt broken. I felt different um, because of my experiences. Um, so even though I was good at putting on a, a good game face, as they say, um, inside, I didn't feel that way at all. Mm-hmm. And when I hit rock bottom, like I was telling you about three years ago, I, uh, I was, I, I almost became a statistic. I was, I was done. I couldn't do it anymore. And I, um, made that one phone call to one of my closest friends. And the only person I felt like I could trust that wouldn't call the cops and have me Baker acted. And, uh, he spent eight hours on the phone with me and talked me out of the dark hole and, um, convinced me that it was okay to ask for help. And, and, you know, that I, I was worried about my agency finding out I was worried about losing my job is what I was afraid of. So he helped me figure out a way to do everything on, on the down low, as they say. And that was where the courage kicked in because reopening those old wounds that never healed properly, um, was hard as hell. I mean, I will not even sugarcoat it. It sucked. Um, and there was lots of days I wanted to quit because it hurt, mm-hmm. but, um, that's, I think where I found the courage to finally ask myself, well, do I want to be miserable the rest of my life or do I want to just suck it up and move on? And I think that's honestly where the courage came, um, which I credit to my years going back to Panama where I worked with seals and that, that never quit mentality, no matter how dark it gets, you just, you're never out of the fight. And I, I genuinely think that philosophy saved my life. And I want to go, I have a few things I want to go over, but how was it to be around Navy SEALs? <laughs> With the exception of motherhood, the best years of my life. <laughs> yeah. um, nothing tops being a mom, of course, but um, it was every day. I mean, you know, the old cliche, you know, join the Navy. It's a, you know, it'd be an adventure or something like that. I can't even remember what it was, but, you know, um, like aim high air force. It was uh, join the Navy. It's an adventure. Yeah, yeah. Shit. Every day was really an adventure. I mean, all the crazy stories are in the book. Um, and they could be the crudest, rudest, had no modesty whatsoever. Um, is this family friendly? Yeah. Okay. That, I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully. That's why I'm no, like, no, no, oh. you don't need to girl, please. <laughs> I, I can, I can let it loose. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, so we, uh, me and another girl at one point, there's only two of us girls at the unit at nine 30, I can tell you to this day, 30 years later, nine 30 every morning, diet Coke break. And we would go sit on the back patio and the guys would have outdoor showers. And one by one after, after PT every morning, they'd walk from the showers to head back to their part of the compound and it would be, oops, I dropped my towel. And they would take their sweet time, picking it up, and pulling it up. And I'm like, we're talking like Greek, you know, gladiator bodies, right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, Lisa and I would sit there and like, it never got old. It's like, hmm, who's going to drop their towel today? Mm-hmm. And I joke and I'm like, you know, everybody gets mad about, you know, men and locker room talk. And I'm like, oh, please, women are just as bad. I think we might be worse, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, and I'm not saying all women and just like I'm not saying all men, but in the book, I actually explain why these guys are so comfortable in their own skin and why nudity is really not a big deal. There is actually a scientific reason for it, um, and it goes back to buds. 
um, and the training that they go through. There's, there's really? a legit, oh yeah. Well, it was like when I went to boot camp. you know, if you were modest, you better get over it because you were in a big room taking showers, completely naked mm-hmm. with 40 other women. Mm-hmm. And there were no stalls. There were no walls between the toilets. There were no, I mean, there was, there was no room for modesty. Well, for, for SEALs, it was, you know, it, it, boot camp was, you know, daycare compared to that. Right. So, yeah, there's, there's actually people like, oh my God. I'm like, trust me, there's always, there's a, there's a, like in, in the top world, there's a method to our madness. Trust me. There's a reason for everything we do. It may not make sense to you, but there is a reason. Yep. hundred percent. So yep. funny. Um, so that's what it was like to be with Navy SEALs. So you loved that. And loved now it. to. To circle back around. And not for that reason, for so many other reasons. I mean, like I said, I was a, a small town girl when I got there and they took a small town girl who cried the first time they put a gun in my hands, literally, and had me an expert shooter in no time and taught me how to take care of myself, which one time I used it and it kept me from getting carjacked and, you know, in a third world country. So... You know, so they they taught me a lot of really valuable tools that I definitely have carried through the years. It's amazing. I just feel like it's such a crazy, unique opportunity that a lot of us would love to just be around people oh, yeah. of that caliber. I mean, it's a very unique kind of person to become a Navy SEAL, and um, we've had we've had a few on the podcast, so that's um that's been fun. So now, okay, so let's go circle back around. So you said that you. Obviously you had some personal reasons for why you, you know, hit your rock bottom. Are you able to describe like what the rock bottom was as far as how you were feeling, what like thoughts you had? And the reason I'm asking you is we have a lot of first responders that listen to this podcast and we all go through our own rock bottom. I've had Mm -hmm. mine and I'm very open about it Mm -hmm. and I'm open about it because I just think that we need to ditch the stigma. I mean, we're Absolutely. so we're so much to so many people when you're a first responder that you know we do we hit rock bottom like and but sometimes we have to do it behind closed doors most times. Oh yeah, for so sure. Can you tell me like a little bit about yours? Yeah, sure. Um, so I wrote one of my chapters in the book. I titled "The Perfect Storm" because in essence, for me that's what happened. Um, I had a rough childhood. I went through some stuff in the Navy um, prior to getting to the SEAL unit that definitely left a mark on me that I'd never properly dealt with. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I went into law enforcement. And I remember my first child death um, was a two-year-old drowning. And I went into, you know, perform like you train, you know, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it was almost like an autopilot and you really weren't processing what was going on at that moment. Um, or at least that's how I work. I don't know if everybody's the same me. I go into like an autopilot mode whenever something bad happens. And I usually lose my shit later. It's well, usually- I think, you know, and, and that's the thing is I think, and I say this a lot, we go into checklist mode, right? Mm-hmm. So then everything just becomes a checklist. It's like, Hey, got to do this. I got to do this. If this happens, mm-hmm. I do this. And if this happens, I do that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was a rookie. Um, it was my first, uh, child, uh, death call. It was a drowning, like I said, um, me and, and me and another deputy, uh, officer, and he was almost as new as I was. Um, we performed CPR, fire department got there, snatched the baby up, took him on the ambulance. 
Um, I got sent to the hospital with the family and waited for the outcome and they worked that poor baby forever. And obviously he didn't make it. Um, I remember being in the ER and the nurses were crying and everybody was crying and the doctor, I was there when the doctor broke the news to the parents and, and I think they were just legitimately in shock. I don't think they were even processing what was happening. Um, and, but everybody was crying and I'm thinking in my mind, these people work in a hospital. They're used to people dying. Why are, why, you know, why is everybody crying? It didn't hit me right away. It was like 24 hours later, I was at home in the shower when it finally hit me what I witnessed. And the next thing I know, I'm on the floor crying in the shower. And I called my mom who had worked in hospitals her whole life. Sorry. Sorry. I had to get a drink. Um, it's okay. And I called her and I'm just, you know, crying. And I said, what's wrong with me? You know, is, is this normal? You know, you know, is this what it's always going to be like? And she's like, nope. She goes, this is perfectly normal. She goes, you know, everybody's got their, their window. Now you knows what yours is. And she goes, it, it will get easier um, with time. Unfortunately, you're just going to get, you know, th thicker skin. Mm. And I had thick skin, but that something like that I had never seen or nor was I prepared for. Right. So, you know, over the next uh, 17 years of my career, I witnessed numerous other child deaths. Um, I got into a gun standoff with a suicidal mother who had a gun to her head while the husband and uh, their oldest son, who was like 21, who both of them weighed at least 250, big, big, big boys. So we had officers fighting the husband and the brother who were trying to get to the mother who was holding a gun while the 13-year-old was hanging in the garage. Oh, my gosh. Worst call ever. Oh, yeah. um, that one. Oh, God. You know, and thank God um, she finally put the gun down. Nobody, you know, nobody else got hurt. Um, but it was it was horrific. I mean, that one really, really sucked. And then there, then there were others, but, um, but for me, just to give you an idea, and I, and I work for a pretty big agency. So unfortunately, the bigger the agency, the more common the, the traumas are because of the population, the density and, and whatnot. So, um, or at least I think that's the way it works. I don't really know. Um, <laughs> but I, I know that I've talked to people from small towns and they're like, oh God, you know, we'll only have like five calls a week. And I'm like, oh no, I carry 20 calls a shift. So <laughs> Right. You know, it just depends on the size of the agency, but in the city. But um, so in 2017, I was going through a personal struggle. I had gotten into a toxic relationship. I hadn't been in a relationship since my daughter was born. She was uh, 11 years old at the time. Uh, it lasted four months and it took me another nine months to get the son of a bitch out of my house. Um, he was out, physically was out, but all of his crap was still. I couldn't get it, couldn't get it. Like, hello, come get your crap out of my house. Mm -hmm. So he was, he was, it turns out, and I didn't know it at the time, he's a bipolar alcoholic. And I was, I had to hire an attorney to just finally get him out of my life. But it came with a lot of drama and at a huge financial cost to myself. So I was dealing with his crap at the time. Now, um, if it had been just that, I would have been fine. It would have just been a nasty, ugly breakup. But in the middle of all this, my German shepherd died, oh. who I had rescued and, and was my baby. Um, and two days later, went into ICU. 
and was not doing well at all. And two days later, I had another two-year-old drowning. Oh my God. So for me, it was back-to-back traumas too close together. Mm. It's one thing to get knocked down, but you know, you get yourself back up again. For me, I think it was, like I said, it was a perfect storm. They all, before I could get up from one, I got punched in the face by another. With the baby dying was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because when that happened, it opened up Pandora's box where everything had been nice and compartmentalized and tucked away in the back of my brain, right? Mm -hmm. And every child death I worked in my career was haunting me. Every traumatic car crash I worked, I was seeing the faces of the people I was talking to when they died. Um, Every traumatic thing I had ever been on, like, hit me at once. It was like somebody literally blew up Pandora's box. And it took me to my knees. It it was horrible. It was about, um, I got to where I withdrew, which is not like me. I'm a very, like I was telling you, I'm a pretty outgoing person. Mm -hmm. I wasn't taking phone calls from anyone, um, which should have been a clue to some people. um, Because I'm one of those people that if I miss your call, I'll call you right back. Yeah. Um, So I wasn't, I wasn't answering calls. I wasn't going um, at work. I was responding to calls and canceling my backup. So my backup wouldn't see me. Um, Yeah, it was bad. Uh, Now, if I, like, if it was a legit call that I really needed a backup on, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't cancel that. But if it was a BS call. Um, I would, I would cancel my backup because I just didn't want, everybody knew me like strangers didn't know me. They don't know what my normal persona was, Mm -hmm. but people at work knew me and they knew my normal persona. And I knew one look at me, they were going to know something wasn't right. So I was Mm -hmm. trying to hide it and I was failing miserably. So, um, I would come home, I would crawl in bed, I would cry and I would cry and I would cry. And it was all I could do just to get out of bed and go to work. Or, or do anything. And my daughter was witnessing all this. And I was, now I'm a failure as a mother. My child shouldn't see me this way. She'd never seen me like that before. I mean, my, in my daughter's eyes, I was, I was Wonder Woman, you know, mm-hmm. and now I'm just a, a, a mess. Mm-hmm. So um, I felt like I was failing as a mom. All the demons got in my head and just really started doing a number on me. And uh, I started just making a like saying this sucks I don't want to do this anymore I don't want to I just I knew I needed help when I started thinking about punching out and the thoughts started going through my head the ideology as they say Mm -hmm. I knew I needed help but I knew I was scared to death to ask for it because I'm like dude they're going to take my gun and badge you know and then I'm going to be embarrassed and everybody's going to find out and it's going to you know and shame my family and my daughter and so I mean just the demons got the best of me and um I started making a plan and I had it all figured out and I put my daughter on an airplane and I sent her to a really close friend of mine who lives in uh, Tennessee and to spend some time on the farm and made it sound like it was going to be like a little vacation for my daughter. And, uh, and I started, you know, figuring, figuring it out. So when I finally got to that point, I, um, I made a phone call to my, my person. I have, everybody has their person. Mm-hmm. Um, I write a lot about him in the book. Um, I called my person cause he was the only person I could trust to tell what was really going on with me. I mean, he knew I was going through a hard time and he knew I was upset, but he didn't know I was having suicidal thoughts. Yeah. Um, so I called him and he was horrible about answering his phone. 
um because he's he's deaf from from military and if he can't get his hearing aids in he, he can't hear the phone oh. so um so oh now he's got those fancy ones where his hearing aids are actually his bluetooths and it's pretty cool because he'll That's leave his cool. phone down and he'll walk away and he can hear what people say when he leaves a room i'm like oh you sneaky little shit <laughs> but <laughs> so um but back then he didn't have the the high high fancy ones yet so um he actually he answered i answered your phone that day which is uh nothing short of a miracle honestly if you if you knew his track record about answering his phone yeah. but um he answered his phone and as soon as he and i in my mind i was prepared to leave a voicemail because I, I was like, I'm just going to leave a voicemail, tell him I love him, and that's it, right? And I he answered. And then I was like caught off guard. And I just started bawling. I mean, I was hysterical. And he couldn't make a rhyme or reason of what I was, was saying. And I finally said the words. And he's like, oh, no, you don't. Not today, you're not. So he spent eight hours on the phone with me. And wow. uh, he checked on me numerous times a day because it was a Saturday. So he checked on me all through Sunday and then made me promise to call into work sick on Monday and to, to go talk to somebody. And he told me how I could do it on the down low without my agency finding out. Yep. And so that's what I did until a few months later, um, I, I met a veteran through a class who did have PTSD. He's a combat veteran and he, he read me like a book. He had his PhD in sociology and he read me like a book. He pulled me out on a break and he said, uh, you said you're in the military. And I said, yeah. And he goes, something happened to you in the military. And I just looked at him like, how the hell did you know that? Mm -hmm. I just started crying. Like I, after all those years, I can't believe somebody finally asked me the question. Right. And I, uh, didn't even have to answer the question my reaction you know told him what he needed to know and he told me i needed to go to the va and get some help and i'm like no he's not going to do anything I, I i never reported anything it's not my service record it's not my medical record he goes trust me there's a lot of other women just like you wow. so he gave me the rest of the day off um and i he because what it was is they were doing uh well your listeners are going to figure this out at this point but you're uh we were listening to uh uh sexual assault victims during interviews mm. and uh I was struggling watching the videos and he was he just he picked up on it mm. and uh so I went to the VA and I'm just standing there and I'm crying and and I'm like why am I here these people aren't going to believe me you know mm -hmm. and the woman's like ma'am I can't help you if you don't tell me what you need mm. and I'm just standing there and I looked up and I saw a big poster and it and it said, uh, MST need help MST and explained what it was. And it gave a phone number. And all I did was point at the poster because I couldn't even say it. I just pointed. And, um, she turned around and she looked at what I was pointing at. She goes, have a seat. I'll be right back. And within minutes I was in a psychologist's office and getting registered. And, um, it took, it took a bit. I mean, I got, I got help right away. I mean, like immediately. Um, I got put into a program. It helped a lot. Um, I know a lot of people say bad things about the VA, but I will say they have come a long, long way in the last few years. Um, and uh, so I have nothing negative to say about them. But uh, uh, so anyway, a year ago, um, I got offered an opportunity to um, get some help at uh, 
the Cooper Clinic in Dallas, Texas, and I wanted to go, but it would require three weeks off work. And I had to tell my agency why I needed three weeks off work. And when I told them, which I was super nervous about, um, they were actually pretty cool with it. And uh, the good the good news is they were very supportive of me getting help. They even wrote it up as a workman's comp injury because of the baby that drowned. Amazing. Yeah. So I'm actually getting dual help. I have help at the VA and I have help at through workman's comp. And I love, love, love. I mean, I've, I can genuinely say my, my counselor and my doctor are phenomenal. Mm. Um, so I'm very happy with the care that I'm getting. Mm. Um, but at the same token, they wouldn't let me go to Dallas and get the, <laughs> and get the care at the Cooper. They wanted, they wanted me to treat locally. Mm. Um, and I'm not a fan of that idea because the local program is more for normal first responder, like uh, traumas where mine's a bit more complicated. Mine's very, you know, partially, you know, sexual assault and then partial first responder. So mine's, mine's way more complicated than the average, you know, a veteran who only saw combat or a first responder who only has seen too much of, you know, dead bodies or a partner lost or whatever. Mine's like a puzzle with a lot of little pieces, mm-hmm. but it is what it is. I'm hoping to retire next summer. And my invitation to go to Dallas is, is actually would have been canceled anyway because of COVID. So yeah. it all, <laughs> yeah, fuck COVID. yeah. So, uh, I wouldn't have been able to go anyway, but now I'm like, I've talked to them and they're like, Nope, we've already got you earmarked. You're good to go. You just tell us when you're ready. And so my plan is to retire this hope. My hope is retire this summer. And then, um, and go, go get the help I need it in Dallas, which is a really good thing. Even, so, even my workman's comp doctor's like, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. That's the best treatment facility in the world. And I'm like, really? He goes, oh yeah, Cooper Clinic is it. So amazing. that was pretty cool. Yeah. That is really cool. So that's what the book, so would you, this is what the book is about? Well, the book is about, um, it's everything. It's everything from my childhood and, um, you know, how I was raised and why I joined the Navy, um, to my adventures and traumas in the Navy. Um, one trauma, mostly adventure. I, I think I'm pleasantly surprised to find out that as many men are enjoying my book as women, I honestly thought that it was going to be, you know, something that women were drawn to, but I can honestly say that I 50, 50, I mean, Mm -hmm. I've had men reaching out to me going, oh my God, I can't put it down. It has got, it'll make you laugh. There are, there are stories in there that are absolutely hilarious. Um, and then there's the sucky parts that will make you cry. Mm-hmm. And then there's the rock bottom. And then there's the triumph in the end. Mm. And um, I am, I am, I am honest to a fault. I will be the first one to tell you that there might be, hasn't happened yet, but there might be some people that read this book and think that they can't stand me because I even admit to, you know, mistakes that I've made and things I shouldn't have done. I'm, I'm not a saint by a long shot, but nobody is. And that's kind of my point. It's like, if we've, if a person's made bad decisions in their life or made mistakes in their life, um, what I've learned is a lot of our mistakes and bad decisions we make, I think honestly, PTSD might be the underlying reason we get to a point where we just don't care. We get numb. Absolutely. Do you mind me asking, you said that you had a plan. What was your plan? I was going to make it look like an accident. So the insurance money would take care of my daughter. Well, of course. Yeah. Not stupid. No. 
You want to know specifically what it was? Yeah. I was going to crash my car into a big concrete pole on an overpass. Well, Jesus Christ. But if you didn't die, that would have been. Oh, no, trust me. I've seen enough deaths at that particular pole. Did you? That, yeah, there's there's been countless deaths at this one specific spot. Um, Well, I have to say, what a miracle it was that your friend picked up the phone that day. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you think that at the time, do you think your agency was lacking in supporting you and other officers? I know we don't okay. want shit on our agencies. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I have a hard time with my memory and chronologically I get things mixed up. So in my mind, I'm going through um, a timeline. Um, okay. So here's what happened. I got diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, two years passed. I was in a much better place. And I heard about this thing called SISM, which is critical incident stress management. And that is a team of um, officers that respond out to traumatic events and render aid to the responders, right? Initially, we do a debriefing. Hey, listen, if you start having nightmares, you can't sleep, this, that, we start telling them all the red flags what to do. Um, having Knowing that I had PTSD, even though they didn't know I had PTSD, I interviewed for the team and I got on. Um, and I wanted to be part of something to prevent others from going through what I was going through. Right. When I was a young cop, it didn't exist. Right. The night, the first baby drowned, all the other deaths, even the night that the, the 13 year old hung herself when we got in the standoff, I'm like, um, there was no debriefing about, are you, you know, it was always a debriefing on operationally what we could be, we could have done better. Right. But there was never like a debriefing as, is anybody okay? Does anybody need to talk? You know, God forbid you said, Hey, that you know, I need to talk to somebody. Then, you know, you were, you were a weakling and, and this job wasn't for you, you know? So of course nobody was going to say, you know, that sucked or that bothered me because, um, when SISM came around, um, I'm not really sure exactly how long it had been around, but what I will tell you is the two-year-old drowning that broke me was my very first SISM meeting that I went to as a responder. Mm. So to me, it was new. How long it was actually around, I don't know because it wasn't really talked about. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I will tell you that the reason my agency covered me under workman's comp, even though I reported the the matter truthfully uh, to, you know, you have up to a year after a trauma to report an incident. I don't know where, if that's a law or I don't, I don't know whose rule that is, but here you have up to a year to say, I've got a problem and, it, and this is why. And the incident that, that precipitated it had to have been within a year. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. In my case, it was two years. However, the reason that they um, allowed it was because, <laughs> sorry, Biggins at it. Um, the reason I, uh, they accepted my case was because um From the time I made that phone call to my friend, 
to the time I actually started getting help mm-hmm. um, was about two weeks. And a week went by and I was having a really bad day. And I was on my bathroom floor and I was just hysterically crying and I couldn't get it together. And I remembered the SISM briefing. And I took a leap of faith and I called because they swore and declared it was confidential, right? Mm-hmm. A leap of faith. And I did call someone on the team. And that person told me that it was going to be okay, that I was going through a lot, that I should just um, go down to the walk-in clinic, tell the doctor what's going on, and they'll give me some Xanax and it'll help me feel better. And that was it. Of course. And uh, nobody followed up on me. I kind of slipped through the cracks on that one. Yep. So when I did report it two years later and I told them what had happened and they called, I'm assuming they called that person and said, do you remember getting a phone call from, you know, Donna about X, Y, Z? Assuming that person said, yeah, I remember that. Um, which in essence, they could say I did report it within a year. I called a matter of a couple of weeks. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I slipped through the cracks. They didn't follow up with me. They didn't, um, get back with me and say, Hey, can we get you some counseling? Can we do this? Can we do that? I didn't get guided in the right direction. I was told go get some Xanax and you'll feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't blame anybody for that. I, I would chalk that up to maybe that person just didn't, didn't really know what to do or didn't really know what to tell me. Maybe it was just, okay, we do these things. Everybody feel better. We, we're here to, if you want to talk to us, but there I was a, a, a complete utter train wreck on the floor of my bathroom sobbing. Um, and the only thing I, I, that I, I didn't say, which I knew better than to say was, you know, Hey, I want to die. Right. right. I knew better than to say that. Of course. But she should, that person should have probably picked up on that this wasn't normal. I was, I was a train wreck. Well, I think it's a departmental thing. And I think it's a thing that is all across the country slash the world is our departments aren't, they're not, they're turning left and right eyes. They're turning a blind eye um, on this, which is why we have the epidemic that we have, which is why there's so many more officers across the world that have your story um, as far as the traumas that they have faced and they've been unable to process it. And, and like you said, um, you took a leap of faith. Some of those officers do not take that leap of faith and reach out. Some people don't have that person that you had, um, you know, and so obviously I'm Who coached me in the right direction. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm quite passionate about this myself. And I think that this is where I have a lot of angst with uh, departments because my department let me down. Um, and not only has my department let me down, it used, it had let down a lot of different people. And I've seen a lot of different departments letting a lot of different people down. My question to you is, what do you, what's your opinion on um, interdepartmental peer support? I think it depends on where you are. I would tell you that currently where I'm assigned, I couldn't ask for it to be any better. I would have, I would have strongly, I, I wouldn't be here right now. And when I say wouldn't be here, I mean, I wouldn't be working, not living. Okay. Mm-hmm. Living wise, I'm good. I'm, I'm much better place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can tell you, um, I, I mean, my plan was to do my 25 years. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I'm 50 years old. I'm going to be 51 in May. Um, May is also my anniversary. I will hit 20 years in May. And I have decided that if and when um, the VA bumps up my disability rating, which my advocate feels very strongly that they will, probably likely by May. So as soon as I find out that the VA has bumped me up a little more in my percentage, in my rating, um, I will be a full, I will be able to afford to take a financial hit to walk away five years early. I mean, it'll be a 15% hit uh, instead of 75, I'll leave with 60%. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way our retirement works, I get a 3% uh, COLA every year. So in essence, in five years, I'm, st- <laughs> I'm still going to get to 75%. So I'm like, Hmm, leave five years early and five years later, okay, and still be able to do something else on the side in the meantime. Yeah, that's kind of a no brainer to me. Mm-hmm. I've yeah. just got to be able to pay my bills. And in order to pay my bills, I need that VA rating to increase a little bit. And like I said, it's just, it would have probably already happened, but COVID again slowed everything down. Um, but to get back to your question, um, yeah, sometimes I feel like, it's a complete smokescreen. I think I will tell you I am on the SISM team and I will tell you that there are people on that team that I have no doubt are on that team for the absolute right reasons and that are hundred percent hard in the right place, definitely doing their job to the best of their ability. I can say that with a hundred percent certainty that they are not the problem. The, the problem is trust. The problem is trust. And the reason that there is a trust problem is there's a, a, it's a leadership issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not willing to put the leadership blame on any one person. It depends on where you work. Like Mm -hmm. I have uh, two supervisors right now that they like, they're the ones that keep me going. They're amazing. One of them is a mental health specialist. He teaches it. He's got, you know, a master's degree in mental health. And, and he's like this, literally the subject matter expert for our agency. That is my sergeant. Mm-hmm. So, um, and my corporal, as far as my book is concerned, is like my number one fan. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I seriously, I mean, I could not ask for better support in the current position that I'm in. And that's what keeps me going. Now, if either of them were to retire, and I got a different supervisor who didn't get it and didn't understand it and thinks it's a bunch of hocus pocus kumbaya crap, which, you know, is a very common philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one I probably would lose my shit and say, fuck you and the horse you rode in on. You know, I mean, and that almost happened recently. I mean, I had a superior that is not in my chain of command who I did not even know had been promoted to uh, a lieutenant um, blindside me and corner me and berate me in front of other people over something that wasn't even accurate. And when I tried to defend, you know, defend myself and say, Whoa, I don't, you know, where'd you get that information? Blah, 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 blah. And I tried to defend myself. Um, he continued to berate me in front of other people. And I was literally in a corner of a cubicle. Um, and I kind of went, I mean, psychologically, I think I went into like the fight or flight, you know, moment. I couldn't flee. Because, you know, we've been taught when you get pissed, when you get angry, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to walk walk away. You're supposed to cool off. You're supposed to get your shit together. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to go back. And you're supposed to have a calm talk about it. 
-hmm. I didn't get that opportunity. I got cornered and I got angry and I, and, and I started to raise my voice and, and argue back. And it was taking every ounce of my power not to drop the F-bomb and not to tell him what horse to, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, because that's what really was on my mind, what I was trying not to say. And um, he said, uh, look, you can, uh, he, he was trying to tell me to do something that was already done, mm-hmm. which is impossible because it was already done. And he's like, look, you can either do what I said or you can, or you can go. And I went, all right. So I closed my computer and I got my shit and I walked out the door and I'm pretty sure that plan did not go how he was, <laughs> how, he, how he thought it was going to go. And mind you, this person is not in my chain of command. Mm-hmm. He, it, I didn't even know he was a Lieutenant um, cause he was recently promoted. So um, I, I got to the car and I, I called my supervisor and I'm like, yeah, got something I think I might have screwed up and he goes oh god what'd you do now and I, I told him what I did he's like well he did give you a choice and I'm like why well, he did he gave you a choice <laughs> but you know long story short you know it, it just that if I will sit here and tell you that if I didn't have PTSD mm-hmm. I would have handled that situation a whole lot better hmm. but my I have a very short fuse mm-hmm. and when I am cornered by a male superior um, in a hostile manner, mm-hmm. that that's a trigger. Yeah. It, it is. It's a trigger, and and there's not a damn thing I can do about it, other than you know what am I going to do? Walk around with a warning level? Don't piss me off, or I lose my shit. I'm like, <laughs> we we can't do that. Yeah, I hear that. Donna, what do you want to leave our listeners with? What's one thing you want to tell them? <sighs> there's well, can I say two things? If you're in a leadership position, don't judge because Mm -hmm. you honestly have no idea what people are dealing with behind closed doors. And unless, unless they trust you, you're not going to know. Trust Mm -hmm. is everything. Um, Take the time to get to know your people, get the time to get to know them so that, you know, if they're having a bad day, you will recognize that they're having a bad day or that they're not the same or that um, something's going on. I can tell you that my closest friends knew I was not, was going through trouble and no one was calling and checking on me. Mm. No one. And the reason um, the only people that were calling checking on me were my personal friends, but my work friends were not. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely believe it's because they were afraid to, they knew I was in a bad place and no one wanted to carry the responsibility of, you know, making a call that, that might've cost me my career or might've got me in trouble or whatever. So Mm-hmm. I, um, I have reached out to countless first responders that I know for a fact we're going through tough times and have told them, I am not trying to burn you. I have been there, you know, please talk to me, you know, let me help you before it gets to that point where that 911 call has to be made. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of really solid nonprofit organizations that are funding for first responders, for retreats designed just for us, mm-hmm. instead of getting baked, well, we call it Baker acted where we are, but instead of getting committed and hauled off to the mental hospital, before it gets to that point, go to, you know, one of these retreats designed for us, where we're with our own people and with people who understand what we're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there's dignity, there's respect, and there is, it's a lot more helpful in the long run. And I think that 
when when agencies and leaderships start recognizing these retreats in these facilities, it's not like a cushy five-star vacation. They call it a retreat because it sounds better than, you know, rehabilitation or rehab or whatever name you want to put on it, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm a big proponent of leaderships and agencies being much more familiar with these programs and nonprofits where first responders can go and get help with dignity, mm -hmm. right? Because they it's a win-win situation in the end. Number two, if you are a first responder and you are going through hell and you are struggling and you're afraid of your leadership or you don't trust your leadership to do the right thing, reach out to the nonprofit organizations and they will help you get the help you need on the down low. Mm -hmm. I know people personally that have done it and, uh, and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. You will find it is totally worth it. I can tell you right now, one of them is called survive first. Doug Monda runs it. Um, and they are incredible. And Doug is a retired SWAT guy. And he, like me, and like many, many of the other mentions, he's, he's walked the shoes. His not the nonprofit he he's running plus several he works with. He literally at a moment's notice gets on a plane, will fly across the country to the first responder in crisis. And he will personally escort them to one of these retreats that they work with. Amazing. That's it amazing. is it really, what's there's the non, so, what's that nonprofit again? Survive first. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. Look him up. Doug Monda, D-O-U-G-M-O-N-D-A. Doug is a great, great, great guy. Yeah, um, absolutely. yeah. So, and, and, and like I said, there's, there's plenty others out there. The problem is, is I don't understand why more people aren't getting educated and taking advantage of those opportunities. hundred percent, a hundred percent. Donna, so where can we find your book again? Tell us the name of the book and tell us where we can find it again. The name of my book is Courageously Broken mm -hmm. by D.A. Michaels, and it can be found on Amazon, Kindle, Nook, Barnes & Noble, um, or through my website, which is courageously-broken.com. That hyphen's important because if you don't put the hyphen in there, you go to the wrong website. So Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing with us your story. Uh, we can't wait to get the book and check it out. And I hope Sheepdog Nation, you guys grab that book. It sounds like an amazing book. Um, and Donna, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Thank you so much, Autumn. I really appreciate it. Of course. Sheepdog Nation, we'll see you next time. They buried me in the water and I came, I knew. <laughs> now I'm baptized in blood. I'm a fighter, I'm a never quit, I refuse to lose I got heart and I got crazy, I'm a warrior That's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue I'm a fighter Hail Mary, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, I ride on the devil, I ain't
take it, it's gonna be a fight I take it to the light Like Will and Bright I wouldn't expect you to understand What I do, only the thin blue line Cause they baptized in blue uh, I'm a fighter I'm a winner, never quit I refuse to lose I got heart and I got gritty I'm a warrior That's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior That's been baptized in blue I'm a fighter Put me in a cage, let me brawl Sometimes I can't help but cry Like why did he die? I know it was him, but it could've been I What about the kids? Uh, what about the spouse? Yeah, now who gon' put food inside them babies' mouth? It's a bigger picture when I officer down Domino effect, blue nation, family, country, and town The media don't cover us, huh Well maybe Fox, cause MSNBC and CNN Surely don't care about cops, politicians more concerned about protecting the legals that are laying the law down And protecting the people, let me get off my soapbox Before I curse, I don't see way too many cops riding in hearse Well, I wouldn't expect you to understand what I do, only the thin blue light Cause they baptized in blue, uh. I'm a fighter, I'm a winner, never quit, I refuse to lose, I got heart and I got gritty, I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue, I'm a warrior, that's been baptized in blue, I'm a fighter, I'm gonna complete it if that means being deleted. I live with the credence. I do this for the combat vets and LEOs when I'm suited, ready to go. It's either friend or foe. Only Lord knows what my future's in store. I only kill with the hope to see more. So God don't close that door. If I take a life, it's him or me. With the host to survive, not be a good tree. I go in situations that you cannot imagine. Deal with things that you cannot fathom. No, it buts or rather. I'd rather fight for cause than live for nothing. So when you read my headstone, you know I die for something. You hypersensitive, she complain by justified force. You blame the cops first. That don't work, you blame the courts. But I wouldn't expect you to understand what I do. Only the thin blue line, cause they baptized in blue. Oh, I'm a fighter. When I never quit, I refuse to lose I got heart and I got gritty I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue I'm a fighter, never win or never quit I refuse to lose I got heart and I got gritty I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue I'm a warrior that's been baptized in blue oh.